Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi everyone, Tom Pearson is with me today to talk about his new poetry collection, Still the Sky. And we'll learn more about the book in just a minute, but first let's get the inside scoop on the author. Tom Pearson is an artist and poet who works in dance, theater, film, visual art, and multimedia. He is known for his original works for theater, including the long-running off-Broadway immersive hits Then She Fell and The Grand Paradise. And as a founder and co-artistic director of the New York City-based Third Rail Projects and Global Performance Studio, he is the author of two books, The Sandpiper's Spell and Still the Sky. You can learn more about Tom and his work on his website at tompearsonnyc.com. Well, hi, Tom. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Thank you, Sherry. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So just to let our listeners know, Tom's book, Still the Sky, was a multiple award winner in our 2022 Reader Views Literary Awards competition, taking home the gold for the poetry category. He was also the Northwest Regional winner, and he also won the Inside Scoop Live Award for the most innovative book of poetry. So congratulations for that, Tom. Thank you. So I guess to kick things off, tell us a little bit about yourself and Maybe a little bit about your writing journey. What sparked your initial love of poetry? Sure. Well, I'm a multimedia artist is what I'm calling myself these days. Uh, <laughs> and I've you know, I spent most of my career working in dance and theater and performing arts. So in a way, the writing work is coming, you know, a, a little bit later, but it actually started first for me. I remember... I remember falling in love with poetry sometime in middle school. Mm. And I think it was, yeah, like sixth or seventh grade. I picked up a book in the library. I picked up Nikki Giovanni's Cotton Candy on a Rainy Day. And I remember reading that book and just like the whole world just like changing for me in that moment and thinking like, oh, this is a way of expressing something that is, um, I don't know, for me, it felt a little bit like how dreams worked and I had a really... I've always had a really strong connection with my dream life. So there was something about the imagery of it, but also the conversational nature of it. I felt like I was having this very intimate exchange with someone who just was incredibly articulate, kind of like how you would have those deep conversations with a best friend or like I would have with my grandma, you know, but but in this really heightened sense. And I, I fell in love, like, and, and I read everything I could find from her. And then kind of, I remember that deepening when I got to high school, I had a really great teacher whose name was Miss Pappas. She was my freshman high school teacher. And she was, she brought in some Nikki Giovanni too, but she was bringing in some other things. Like it felt very rock and roll to me. Right. Cause she mm. was the way she was presenting. It was like, here's this poet. And then here's this rock star. And we're looking at the lyrics. And I remember one of them being the cure, which I think in 19, this is like back in 1987, 88, 89, right. This era that, that it's happening. The Cure's Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me album came out. And I remember taking that song, How Beautiful You Are. And um, maybe that's that's a Baudelaire poem. or I, I I can't remember now what, but it, but it was actually from a poem. So we were looking at those lyrics and we're analyzing, you know, um, Wrapped Around Your Finger by Sting. And she had just this really great way of presenting 
poetry, but like loosening the definition of it and, and being very inclusive and made it feel really rock star. And I think she hooked a lot of people onto poetry. So I started writing then. That's when it really began for me. Yeah, I love that. It, um, the way that she taught you, I don't remember having that kind of experience. You weren't just learning about some old dead guys, you know, re reciting poetry. Mm -hmm. you know? It makes a difference. Yeah, it makes a big difference. It makes a big difference where you start is really important. And I actually held on to that as a teacher, too. And I, I've learned this lesson that if there's something that's really important, there's a classic or something, you don't have to start at the beginning and try to work forward. That's a lot to do. But you can start with what's exciting right now and work backwards. And that opens doors for people to, you know, to kind of go deeper and deeper and deeper and further back, but without having to live through the eons of, you know, all the problematic things that, that come along with that with reading dead authors, you know, like it, <laughs> it, it just allows you to start now and go back and to identify with something that you connect with in the present tense First, yeah. and let that lead you. And I, I appreciate that approach yeah. and try to use that. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your book. What is Still the Sky about? Oh, well, it's about me, really. I mean, it's a little bit of a, a mixture of things. The book is a collection of poems from, you know, I've been writing and collecting them and putting them aside for many, many years. And it's it's my second book. My first book was really like clearing the way, like with that, with old, old work that I wanted to see if there's any viability in it, get it up and running. And that book was called Sandpiper Spell. Mm -hmm. And I got that done. And then this book is like the next stage of that. And uh, it was taking some things that I had already written and seeing if there was a mashup between that and this, uh, the current writing I was doing. So it was personal. It was about coming of age and first love, but also losing a great love and the sort of reckoning with the artifacts of your time together of of what it means to be in a relationship for a long time or to have a common like root experience that you've passed through and that time is over and and what it means to kind of catalog it and reckon with the pieces of it and so on that personal level i was writing from that perspective and then i had um I had a commission to make a site-specific immersive performance work in San Diego with La Jolla Playhouse and Without Walls. So I had that like a framework for something I was working towards. And I and I was on a fellowship residency at the Boliasco Foundation in Italy, which was just mm. a, a magical, magical place and a beautiful time. And so what happened is that those writings and that opportunity kind of came together. And I thought, well, what is going to bridge this work or create a palette for me to work from. And I, I didn't really intend to write like a book. I was just writing material that I would then, mm -hmm. you know, you use in performance in some way. And, and all of a sudden, like, you know, the floodgates opened and one day I, I was just kind of staring out. It was, it was so idyllic. <laughs> I, would, I was stare, staring out at the Ligurian sea outside of my studio. Right. And I was watching the seagulls nesting and I was really just observing that for, for a very long time and watching the ways in which, they would take shifts. The mother and father seagull would take shifts with the nest. Mm. And all of the imagery of, of the Icarus myth came to me. And I started thinking like, here I am in Italy. And here, here is all of this mythology that's, that's now suddenly coming to mind. And what if that became a framework for telling the story where I could put a little distance between me and, and what is so personal to me and give it a mythological framework. But I also got really interested in combining mythologies and getting a little bit 
messy in that regard too. So I took Icarus and the Minotaur and I put them together because timeline wise, you know, it, they, they do sort of line up and in the mythologies, they never interact, but mm -hmm. their childhoods most likely would have converged. So I created this as a relationship between them and a coming of age between them. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of what got it started. And then it was just, you know, it gave me a sandbox to play in to really tell this story. Yeah, I guess similarly, I was reading a lot of Sappho in translation and Carson, I think. Um, and I need, as an artist, I need restrictions. I need to give myself parameters to work in so that I can, I can in, in, innovate within that. So I decided to choose like kind of sapphic styling is mm -hmm. what I'm calling. Mean, I'm not very, I don't strictly adhere to it, but I, but I was like the Aeolic verse and the sapphic, you know, sort of style of it gave me a sensibility to, to kind of come in musically with it. And so it has this, it has a sense of, of a musicality and, and because I was talking about an adolescent kind of moment in these characters' lives or a coming of age, it also had a drama to it or a melodrama to it even where, where that, that verse comes in very heavy on the, on the first two accents and then it kind of ends with a clip, but it but it has a melodic flow. And I thought I would just give that to myself as a challenge and see what would happen with it. Wow. Wow. I, I love hearing the backstory because there's so much um, that you've put into this book. There's also a lot of artwork in the collection. Um, mm -hmm. The title and the, the cover really grabs the reader's attention. What is the significance of the man falling from the sky as it relates to your collection and, and the title of the collection? Yeah, well, the title itself comes from Ovid, from mm. the mythology of Icarus, actually. And so it's the, you know, in the beginning, uh, homesick for homeland, Daedalus despised Crete and his long exile there, but the sea held him, though Minos blocks escape by land or water, Daedalus said, still the sky is before us. So I chose it from that, from that okay. passage, still the sky. And I liked it because it it's sort of you know, it's rooted in the mythology, but it also is very connotative. It opens up to a lot of interpretation and 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 intrigue. And I just wanted to be provocative with that to get mm -hmm. people to go like, what is that? What does that mean? And then <laughs> early on in the book, I think I think you see it and and then you go, oh, okay, it's it's Icarus. So the man fall, falling from the sky is also Icarus. And I didn't want to do anything to like classical or obvious with Icarus with his wings taking off, you know, so I wanted to show him without the feathers falling from the sky. Oh, wow. And right. at first I, I worked with um, the cover art is by Owen Jett, who is an artist out of Bristol, England, who I found and worked with him on both of my book covers. And with this, you know, we wanted something very simple, very iconic. So that, that man falling from the sky. But when I first saw it, I was like, you know, it, it was a little bit, you know, it, I have been in New York for the past 25 years and it really looked like that image of, of the falling man, you know, after nine 11. And I was oh, like, okay, right. well that's, yeah. that's kind of intense. And I wanted, you know, it's like add a couple feathers, you know, do it so we can at least uh, put it in the, in this world a little bit. But I also kind of, you know, that is an image that has haunted me for a very long time. So I also kind of leaned in a little bit to that. Mm. And uh, yeah, but the inner artwork is, is all mine. That was from an art installation that I've actually, I'm still working on it. It keeps growing. It's all of these bits and pieces of, you know, talking about the relics. It, it's related to the text and the relics that are mentioned 
And then I, I was actually literally building that art installation that would house the relics. And it, that all happened during pandemic. It started as a, I was at Olin College of, of Engineering as an artist in residence. And I was working with a group of students on this project. So we were all, as I was writing the book, we were developing different ideas from the book. Some of that was art installation. Some of that was an interactive performance that we had planned to do within the library mm. of Olin. And then I was working with some students on a VR demo that was part, like you could actually go into some of these installations virtually. But the pandemic, when we were all sent home in March of 2020 for spring break and then told like, you don't come back. <laughs> yeah. We were, we were, yeah, we all kind of were working remotely still together. And I just started building this in my back room, you know, this art installation and it hasn't had a chance yet to go into the world in any tangible way except for in the book. So I thought I thought it was nice to put the art with the language all together. Yeah, wow. I feel like the pandemic really sparked a lot of creativity in people. Um, everybody was looking for something to do. And of course, your project was already started, but it really kind of initiated, I feel like, a different level of a creativeness that we might not have seen. Yeah, it may, well, I, again, with the parameters, right, it made us innovate in different ways and figure mm -hmm. out how we could continue to work together and how we could bring things that, I mean, this is the, I, I think one of the superpowers of working in multimedia is that sometimes you do have to shift and sift an idea from one genre to the next. And then, so I was, I was kind of excited about that. And I discovered a lot along the way. It helped, it helped me build the world out and make it more three-dimensional. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you say you prefer one form of poetry or, over the other, or do you use one uh, format or style more than the other, or, or do you use different formats throughout your book? Well, I'm not sure that I've done enough or settled into one way of writing, but I think in the first book, I, it was very visual to me. It was minimal and visual and no punctuation anywhere in it at all. Mm. Uh, and in this book, still the sky i there's lots of commas <laughs> and uh and and so much punctuation and and i feel like the first one if it was if if it felt more visual to me this one feels more musical in a way and um and we're already working on the audiobook where i have three different performers working together to sort of have these like different voices and choral moments and i've worked with a composer and the entire thing is composed all the way through so like automatically i think even though there's visual art in this book, it felt like a musical sound to it. And, and so we've moved in that direction. Oh, that's interesting. So you're like all your commas and, and it's like reading music, but in a different format. <laughs> it sort of feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you believe poetry is accessible to a wide audience? And the reason I'm asking this is because I feel like many people feel like it's intimidating to either interpret or well even just to read mm -hmm. sometimes and I'm one of those people I'm I'm intimidated by it but I'm mm -hmm. I'm maybe I'm too analytical because I want to figure everything out so I guess the better question is uh, what suggestions or encouragement can you give to people that feel this way toward poetry I think people are afraid sometimes of not getting it right and this is I mean it's the same problem that I have in choreography and dance, right? Like, because my, my entire career has been contemporary dance for the most part, right? It's all been 
built on that and i so i started <laughs> i think i chose the two most difficult things you can you can <laughs> make a career out of to make a <laughs> dance dance and poetry no but i think it's the same problem sometimes in dance where people are afraid of not getting it or you know need some kind of invitation but also some permission to just like not get it and put it down if it's not holding your attention because there's such a there's no one type of poetry and there's no one type of dance and there's no one story or one format. So it kind of goes back to like, what is your entry point and to it? Mm -hmm. And that feels really important that you find something that speaks to you and connects with you and they grow from there and not necessarily try to, you know, don't take on the hardest thing first or the most intimidating thing first. Not necessarily. I mean, maybe if, my dad is kind of like that. He'll go for the hardest thing first. So I'm like, if that works for you, that's great. But give yourself permission not to get it and lower the stakes on that for yourself, right? I read a lot of poetry that I don't get at first, but if there's some element to it that holds my attention, some image, some phrase, then I'll give it time and I'll go back and reread it because there's a certain amount of... um it feels a little bit like a like a poker game sometimes that some cards are turned over and others are hidden and you have to spend a little time with it for it to reveal itself and so there's a slow release sometimes to poetry that i think people also have to have a, a bit of patience with themselves for that to happen mm -hmm. i always try to if, if i read something that i think a particular person would like i always try to send that to them and say hey this made me think of you i wonder how you'd feel about it so that you know i i feel sometimes like a like a matchmaker in that way that i would oh. that i'm hoping to make the right invitation to the right person you know yeah because it feels like that in performance sometimes too that the invitation be right yeah 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 and i get that wanting to get it and you know, but then I suppose, you know, it could mean one thing to the author. Maybe it means something different to this person or something different to that person. So, I mean, I guess it's not set in stone what it means. Mm -hmm. or, or is that wrong? <laughs> See me uh, guessing. Well, I can't speak for anybody else, but for my own work, I try to make room for the reader so that it can be what, like whatever. And in my work, too, as, as in performance, I there's a centering of the reader or the audience so that there's enough space around them that whatever they see is right. It's about them, right? Like that space mm -hmm. is for them to occupy. And so it's meant to provoke memory and and memory pathways and, and imagery and for someone to see a personal connection to it. And when they do, that becomes their story. And it is absolutely the right story. It, there's no way for that to be wrong. You know, there's no way that I've written this for you to get exactly what I meant. And there's no way for that to ever be possible. I think it's just whatever it conjures in the reader and that becomes theirs. And that's why to me, it's so personal. I think poetry is my favorite thing for me as, as a reader. I feel like it's a very vulnerable, very honest offering from the writer. I'm very critical of performance I see and other things that I read or experience. But with poetry, I feel like I come to it with such a, a place of gratitude that whatever someone has offered to me, I meet it on its own terms. And if it conjures something in me, it becomes a favorite, right? And I keep it. Mm. And if if not, you know, I still am very grateful for the experience of learning something about someone because it is a, I, th I can't remember who said this, but poetry is really one of the best records we have of the human heart through time. And I, I love that idea that it's just a very personal offering that someone has given Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question, but I, yeah. but I do think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of releases someone a little bit too, if they're feeling pressure when they open up a poetry book and, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, kudos to opening it if that's not your thing in the first place, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> giving yeah. it a shot. But um, it's also a state that you have to enter, I believe, because you're dealing with things that are speaking symbolically a lot of the time with performance or film. And, you know, it's like the difference between watching a blockbuster action film and watching a Fellini film. You enter a different space. You come to it differently. It, it's going to be more imagistic. It's going to be more symbolic. So you have to be a little settled in yourself as a person who's, you know, going to go into that world and read. And I think sometimes that's, it's a little bit environmental. Like, where are you when you read it? How are you feeling when you read it and you pick it up? And just understanding that, like, I think everything deserves to be given one or two chances before you pass it on, but then don't be afraid to put it down if it's not working, right? There's mm-hmm. so much out there. There's so much written and so much that you can connect with that, that you know, I, I would say just try a few things. Yeah. And I guess that's true for anything too. I mean, I conjured up an image of, of trying to read a classic. Sometimes you just don't get something like for me, it was little women. I, I read it at mm. three different stages in my life and I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy it at any stage, you know, Right. but it, yeah, it just depends on where you're at and whatnot. So that makes sense. Uh, yeah. I, I like that too, that sometimes you pick up something and you know, there's something in it for you, but not yet. And you put it away until later. Mm-hmm. I have a couple books that I picked up to read and I was like, I just, this is too much, but I, but I will read it one day. And then, you know, like you said, sometimes you still don't connect with it, but other times you pick it up and all of a sudden it's relevant to your life because you've been living life for you know, the past 10 years since you picked it up. And so your experience and you have changed and now you meet the work right. and it means something. So right. so what are people saying about Still the Sky? I don't know. I feel, you know, I feel like as a writer, I'm so much more isolated from how people receive the work than I am like in theater and, and other forms where you get a sense that like people are vibing with it or not. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've received some good feedback, some good reviews, and a few people have reached out. And I love when when just readers reach out and say, this is great. Thank you for putting this out. Or mm-hmm. I really connected with this or that or the other. Like I, that feels really good, not just for the, you know, the sort of dopamine <laughs> effect of like, oh, good, it's working or, or that feels good to, to receive, but just to know that people, that it's connecting, you know, like I think that that sometimes that's hard to understand that you're actually connecting with people and that. And it's a slower effect because it takes people time to read it and live in it. People read at different speeds. So you don't get that immediate reaction when you put something into the world in written format. So I think I'm still learning how people are affected by it. But it's been good so far. I mean, I've gotten a lot of positive responses from readers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. And it's dense. It's a very dense work. So I think sometimes people are taking a lot of time and going back and rereading it or just spending time with one particular poem inside of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have one reviewer that will do that. She'll read and spend time on, on a piece of, of poetry and then kind of journal about it, you know, write mm. down her own feelings about what she got out of the poem. And I, I love that. So what's next for you? Will you Are you working on another collection or uh, what's, what's next in your, your writing world? In my writing world, I have something that is that is kind of bubbling up and I've been concentrating on on some other things i just finished uh, a performance that i've been working on for a couple of years that that took place earlier this year and then i'm shifting into some some newer things in that realm too and so there's this 
this kind of thing that happens when when other things are going on where I'm just kind of like I'm writing in between things and all the interstitial moments like I'll just scribble things and so I, I'm in this place of collecting ideas and writing about them but it's not yet taken a path but it's getting more and more insistent you know on on like in my psyche and knocking at the back door of my my brain saying like okay it's time you got to let us out so I need to find a way to start to organize that and a lot of it is lost in voice memos. So I need to actually find some time to collect my voice memos that I leave to myself in the middle of the night or on an airplane or, or walking in the woods, you know, I'll just have these, that's when things come to me. And I've just accepted that I, the only way to be ready for it is to always have my voice memo, you know, app on, on my phone and be ready to do it. So yeah. I need some time to actually sit and listen to all of those notes because there is something that's starting to form. And I, I really want to bring that forward because I've been for the last, I don't know, year, I've really been in the rollout mode for Still the Sky. And now it's becoming an audio experience. And it's also the book just came back from the publisher in Italy. I had a, an Italian translation made of it. So that version of it is in English and Italian side by side from Interno Poesia Publishers. And it's called Eppure il Cielo, which is Italian for Still the Sky. So there's that too. And so there's still all of this like attention to to the book that is now you know, in my mind, it's a year and a half old. So I'm, I'm kind of done with it, but I'm still rolling <laughs> it out. So that's always like a, for me, a, a hard moment to transition to the new material and start to give it the attention. And anyway, that's going to happen soon. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely being pulled yeah. towards that. Yeah. Do you have a time frame for that rollout? It's sometime this year. I know the Italian translation is coming out probably in June. And then later in the year, we'll probably have the audio version of this out so tentatively like september i would think mm. yeah okay it's all recorded it's all the first drafts are done but there's because it's so much music and so many different voices we're having to spend a lot of time mastering it so that's exciting yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. it's very cool i really have enjoyed that process yeah well i wonder if you might do us the honor of reading a couple of your poems before we go sure this is such a, you know, from the beginning to the end, so, so kind of narrative about these characters. I, I've chosen a couple that actually stand alone a little bit. So I think I'll read uh, The Blessing of the Fleet, which is from chapter six. The first poem is called The Night Fisherman. Okay. Before he dons the fins and gills, he will need to ride the horses of the hurricane. He holds his breath to listen through fog on nights that pass along Neptune's shore. On the back porch of recent memory, a tiny boat rests in camouflage, far from the bountiful water and the company of sturdy fathers. It waits for a man who is sleeping to patch a broken rib in its body as poles lean long against a fence, fashioned for gigs that now defend a fortress. The young boy remembers the itch and rash from the unfinished handles and how the man never noticed the thread shards because his own hide had calloused over. The boy is waiting, too, for the man to wake, to go again into the mud-murky creeks of side-winding waterways, to places he finds only in the dark, on moonless nights past phantom fish, who follow lanterns glow. Off the bow and shoreside, their migrating eyes look up from sandy beds, leeward, silent guides, with permission to seek out the world of men and the land of boyhood remembered, whisper secrets to him and to him again, from the silent world below, that he might share something of who he is, or who he was, or who he might never become, 
silhouettes in conversation across the years of silence. In confession to the starboard realm, which requires sacrifice of sleep, they are now granted clear audience below the quilt of sky spackle on black, a canvas where marsh birds witness the voices that carry cross tides, his response between two worlds with something left too for a boy to tell and a man to hear, some distance beyond the dark, between prow and stern to echo back something of what he has learned, a collection of collagen and salt saved for this night. Pulling in the blackness, they stir the pre-dawn waters with a remedy for the years ahead, a tale told not as father to child, but as children to themselves. Mm. Wow, that gave me chills. You know, that was a memory of my father of, of fishing at night with him. And, uh, you know, so much of this work is, a, is an indictment of relationships between men and how they go wrong. I wanted to have some examples of a healthy sort of relationship between, you know, generations of masculine forces. So this was, <laughs> this was my effort to put in, you know, something that, that was an example of, of, a, of a nurturing moment. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear another one if you'd like. Yeah, I'll, I'll read the one that follows that, actually, just to keep it moving in that direction. This one is called Story Stealers. He comes and waits, brother of twilight, sibling story stealer, his figure molten by nightfall, the song he gives, the binder of our inheritance, an inscription whose repetition makes me listen for a god yet to waken, his house flooded, water we ride round the room. A vessel unmoored sails away on cloudy skies, his face moonlit to dream together before the house empties. He sings to those that can hear, low and broken, anchored to marble. Falling, we make part of the routine. Landing, good enough for fighting. Comedy, ours to keep. This performance, our warm-up, vamping for a tardy muse. Charlatans arrive from the lake country, a magician with his silks and fire takers there to play, swindle, and make merry after our fantasy failed. Together we dance and make light these shortcomings. In daylight, harder to see thieves or warnings of red tide. At night, sirens call out through open casements, whispering ill advice of truth, traveling at a distance, some lonely road up ahead. For fear of those inscribing their lives at this bench with carving knives. As the night wears on, a companion at his side, he gets older for tomorrow's journey. Absorbs all the pigment and light now leached from portraits on the wall. Picks up his cane and hobbles away satisfied. His vessel at full speed across dawn's wet sky. Paints his memories of evening there in stolen hues. Sister of the deep reflects in watercolor his efforts up above. Working as I sleep by safety of night, knowing each in its time until morning. Wake then to what has been stolen by thieves in the night, under my breath, at rest, listening to my dreams, a family of shapeshifters, my sibling story stealers. Mm, wow. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the story behind <sighs> that. <laughs> I, I, I felt I honestly, different moods in that one. Yeah. yeah, well, this one, this one, I remember less its origin. I think it was a bit of a, a puzzle piece that I put together from from scraps of other things. Maybe it came from a dream or maybe it came from some other work, but I had this image of people sitting in a pub late at night and there were story stealers in the pub, you know, they were just, <laughs> you know, 
they were sort of like mythical godlike people. They're stealing the hues and the color from the portraits on the wall, and they were going to use that to paint the sky. And then there was, you know, the ocean goddess was going to do the same and reflected in the watercolor. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I honestly don't know where those images sort of originated, but they got it personified and assembled as just people sitting around in a pub overhearing people's stories and then running away with them. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you've written two books of poetry now and um, Mm -hmm. more to come, I'm sure. But what kind of advice would you give based on your experience to like emerging poets or or aspiring poets even? Oh, I feel like I'm still one of them. I I have the same advice, I think, for all creative people, which is to, you know, worry about things kind of when, when it's time and not too far in advance and so that you don't foreclose the creative time that you're in you know that that because that's a hard thing I, th- I think a lot of people are all already trying to fit it into the format or the mm. you know to think about the way in which it, it it should go into the world and be most successful which is you know of course important but also I think if you really spend time with the idea and you listen to the idea as if it you know were a child that you're raising and you're observing to see what the proclivity is, to see where it wants to go, to see what it wants to become and where it, you know, where it leans itself. And 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 that way it can guide you. And I always think that if you spend that time and you really work with the idea and listen to it and fight to stay in the creative space and keep the editor out for as long as possible, mm. that then the work will define itself and tell you where it wants to go. And some things are, you know, meant to go wide and some things are meant to go deep, right? And I believe if you spend that time there, it'll go where it is meant to go. I find it's harder and harder. The more you get recognized and the more successful you are, the less time there is for that experimental place. And so, I don't know, the more you do, the more you have to fight to protect it and just live live in that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And the more you have to kind of like carve out a special time to do that even, you know, Mm -hmm. the more. Right, right. Yeah. Huh. It's sort of like you spend a lot of time just being creative until things go into the world. And then when people start going, oh, what's, you know, what's next or when, or I would like to commission you, you know, which is great when that happens, but then you're suddenly on, on an immediate deadline and yeah, you don't necessarily have that time to experiment and that research and development and time to listen to your own ideas, is the most important part of the process, I think. Mm-hmm. So I just encourage that and always, all the time. And I try to remember my own advice in that regard and, and do it as well. <laughs> also good life advice in general, too, I feel like. You yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tom, did you have anything else you wanted to add today? No, I just I appreciate the time with you. And thanks for making the space. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking to you and getting to know a little bit more about you and your work. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Tom Pearson, author and poet of Still the Sky. You can learn more about Tom and his work at his website, TomPearsonNYC.com. And be sure and check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com.